Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Both Sides of the Stethoscope. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Colby Salerno, along with my co-host, Dr. Aline Gregosian. Hi, guys. We are very excited tonight to bring you a special episode about uh, dermatology and skin care, especially in the transplant population, which is very important. Uh, so, Aline, tell us a little bit about our guest. So, I'm really excited to have our special guest on tonight. It's actually my best friend from medical school, Dr. May Hall. She's a practicing dermatologist in Tennessee. She's one of my best friends. We've known each other since medical school. She's amazing. She always wanted to do dermatology, even when we were in med school. Uh, and she has a lot of things to share with us today. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I guess we can get started. So we sometimes talk about this. There's always like different side effects that we have to kind of deal with as transplant patients. And one of the major ones is is generally how we're all a little more um, prone to getting skin cancers, cancers in general, but mostly usually skin cancers. And so dermatology is a big, big thing that we have to follow up with after transplantation. So May, what can you tell us about dermatology, skin, and how different it is for people who have transplants or immunocompromised? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Skin health is really important in immunocompromised populations. Um, patients who've had solid organ transplants and those who take prolonged courses of immunosuppressive therapies can actually promote tumor growth on the skin that's independent of the immune system. So um, there was a recent journal article from the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology that um, talked about some of the statistics and patients who've had those solid organ transplants, they're at a 65 to 250 fold higher risk of developing the second most common skin cancer, which is a squamous cell carcinoma. They're 10, uh, 10 times more likely to have a basal cell carcinoma and up to an eight fold higher risk of melanoma. So the statistics are pretty significant and skin cancer actually makes up about 40% of post-transplant malignancies. That is crazy. I feel like we've, we hear those numbers, but then just like emphasizing them again, um, I don't know, it kind of like makes it much more tangential and, and crazy. Uh, sometimes even as a doctor, like you assume that just because it's skin cancer, it's not a big deal. But do you have any statistics on how often they metastasize or get worse? Um, I don't have specific statistics as far as metastasis. There are certain types of, you know, um, melanomas that can be more aggressive. Um, there are certain types of squamous cells that can be more aggressive. There is one statistic that was shared in that same journal article that said 82% of kidney transplant recipients will develop one or more of these skin cancers after 20 years. Oh, um, wow. So it's, it's actually pretty prudent that we have um, these patients come in and get their skin evaluated. What does that entail? Like what exactly is a skin check? So you come into the office and we put you in a gown, um, you know, your undergarments, you can leave them on or you can take them off, whatever is your preference. Um, and then systematically, you know, I will go through every area of your body. I check between your toes. I check in your mouth. I check on your scalp, just places that you wouldn't even think. Um, but you'd be surprised by how many times there's something lurking even in the scalp. Um, but basically it's about a 15 to 20 minute appointment and we check you over thoroughly. If you've had a history of skin cancer or even something that's had, you know, you've had lymph nodes removed, I'll go ahead and I'll do um, a general lymph 
note examination too. Um, and then anything that you've noticed that's changing on your skin, whether it's size, shape, color, a non-healing wound, that's something that I would evaluate very closely too with a tool called a, derm- um, a dermatoscope. So May, I have been dealing with this a lot since my transplant. I've had three instances of basal cell. Um, I have likely two more on me right now that I need to get checked. Are there certain medications that you know of that make people more likely to develop skin cancer? Is it all immunosuppressants or are there some that are more concerning? That's also a really good question. Not all immunosuppressive agents carry the same risk. So systemic calcineurin inhibitors like cyclosporin, tacrolimus, um, they actually inhibit Langerhans cells and they decrease the cytotoxic T cell activation. So they have a more significant increase of those skin cancers. Um, Same thing with like thiopurines, like azathioprine um, carries a higher risk of non-melanoma skin cancer. So like your basal cell and your squamous cell. Um, Things like Celcept um, or mTOR inhibitors, so serolimus, um, they actually have a better effect on skin cancer because they have more of that anti-proliferative and anti-neoplastic properties. Wait, so those put those are those still put you at risk, but not as high as the others or the other way around? Yeah, exactly. So they don't have quite as high of a risk of you developing those skin cancers over time. So if you have a really high burden of skin cancers that you're developing, sometimes I would even talk to the transplant team to see if you would be a good candidate to switch over to like serolimus. Oh, interesting. Um, I didn't know that. That's interesting that you say that because my when I was having a lot of skin cancer, the decision was made to switch my Celsep to uh, serolimus um, or serolimus, however you want to say it. Um, but it sounds like those are kind of in the same category so that wouldn't have been much of a change or do you feel like that is a difference? It's hard to say. You know, those kind of are the general two categories as far as having a more um, a more positive impact on the skin, but that's not to say that it's going to take away your risk of skin cancers at all. Good to know. Yeah. And then what, what are some ways to prevent skin cancer? Give us the, give us the lowdown from a dermatologist. Um, You know, the general spiel is to kind of do a self-evaluation at home every month. Um, Take a mirror, like a handheld mirror and check the front of your skin and then stand up against like a full length mirror and just kind of look at the back of um, your skin with that handheld mirror to see if there's anything that you're noticing that's changing in size, shape or color. Um, Finding something early on and early detection is kind of the key. Um, Other things to do, you know, sitting in the shade, obviously, if you're going to be outdoors, UPF 50 or higher clothing. Um, There's a company called Coolabar that sells really nice, lightweight clothing that you could wear. And then sunscreen SPF 30 or higher actually protects you from 97% of UV rays. Um, Anything beyond that, it's kind of a more marginal effect. But the higher the SPF, you know, the better. Um, There was a study done that showed people who have had a split face study. So people who had SPF 30 on one side of their face and 100 on the other side, and those who had SPF 100 at higher altitudes burned less. Um, So just keeping in mind that. And then a lot of people don't really know that there's two different types of sunscreens. There's mineral and chemical sunscreens. Mineral sunscreens, basically their active ingredients are um, 
titanium dioxide or zinc oxide. And what happens is when there's that's on the skin, basically the UV light bounces right off the skin. Whereas chemical sunscreens, which have um, oxybenzone or avabenzone as their active ingredient, sometimes people can develop allergy to those, but they actually absorb UV light and scatter the particles. So mineral sunscreen generally can be a bit better, especially if you have more sensitive skin. But, you know, putting sunscreen on um, at least 30 minutes before you're going out in the sun and then applying every two hours or so when you're outside is a good idea. I'm like taking notes. So one of the things that I find difficult, I think it's easy to reapply like, like on my legs or on my, my arms if I'm going out, but reapplying if I have makeup on, do you have any tips for that? Kobe probably really wants to know the answer to this too. It's important. Yes. Um, so Color Science, and there's a couple of other um, companies like Super Goop. They make something similar, but they have, um, it's like a mineral-based sunscreen that you reapply over makeup, and it's actually just a powder. So it's almost like a setting powder oh, that you can um, reapply right over your makeup. Oh, that's really awesome. So getting back to me, <laughs> um, you know, using this opportunity <laughs> as best I can, Um this Multi- is not medical advice. Everybody go to your own dermatologist. Yes, that's true. It's just because I need to go to my dermatologist and I'm very bad at, you know, I'm making the argument that doctors make the worst patients. That's definitely me right now because it's been, yes. I don't know, two years probably since I saw my dermatologist. But they treated some of my um, cancer basal cell, not that serious, but uh, worrisome, my basal cell with procedural, like removal, and then they treated some with 5-FU cream. Is there one that's better than the other? Is it location that makes a difference for those kind of who don't know, kind of explain how the treatment options work? Yeah, that's a, that's a good, that's a good question. So um, there are certain areas of the body that are more cosmetically sensitive. So head and neck generally, and then, you know, sometimes the genital region, um, those types of cases are better served with Mohs, which is a certain um, technique that preserves as much normal tissue as possible. And you wait in office basically, and the Mohs surgeon will take a small um, margin around the skin cancer and then check it under the microscope while you wait. So you have the smallest scar possible too. Um, standard, you know, standard of care for the head and neck is Mohs, but then other areas of the body, you know, if you had, um, a certain subtype of a basal cell that was nodular or um, ulcerative, then those, you know, you could do with excision. But ones that are more superficial on the superficial layers of the skin, those can be readily treated with that 5-FU. And great information. Thank you. Isn't there something you can take orally too, May, um, to prevent? Like some dermatologists do recommend it. Uh, what, what was that called? Um, oral nicotinamide might be oh, what you're right. thinking about. Yeah. So, so that's vitamin B3, and that actually has some protective effect um, against developing skin cancers like squamous cell, as well as precancerous lesions called actinic keratoses. Um, you would take it twice a day, depending on you know whether your physician approved it for you. And that has shown, you know, studies have shown that that helps to reduce the number of skin cancers that you would develop. Um, usually, it's reserved for patients who've had, you know several of those squamous cells um, over time or a lot of those precancerous spots, not necessarily for somebody who's never had anything on their skin. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I think, I mean, I have different, uh, you know, friends with different transplants. Some people are on it, some people aren't. Obviously, talk to your doctor if you guys 
if the listeners, you know, have any questions about this, but it is a possible option for some people out there. I will say this though. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to give a little plug or a little um, spiel about getting a skin check. So um, it's, it's, you know, the, the consensus is regardless of your immunosuppressive regimen, you should have regular skin cancer screening if you had a solid organ transplant. Um, So depending on your immunosuppressive regimen, you're, dermatologists may consider um, increasing your frequency of screenings um, and full body skin exams should be done for high risk Caucasian patients within two years of having a transplant. And then all Caucasian, you know, Asian, Hispanic, high risk African-American patients within the first five years of having your transplant. Um, And those high risk categories include thoracic organ um, transplant recipients, patients who are 50 and older, males, and those who've had extended UV exposure, or even just prior skin cancers, and, you know, so on and so forth. But um, there's no real consensus after that as far as follow-up. But I would recommend personally having you know, an annual skin check just on the books that you come in once a year, your dermatologist evaluates you because you may not even notice something changing on your skin. Um, But if you have a history of multiple non-melanoma skin cancers like the basal cell or squamous cell, or if you're at a high risk for developing more squamous cells, you may be asked to come in every three months. Kobe, you have to get your skin checked ASAP. Yeah, I promise. I promise I'll call tomorrow. (laughs) So I think for me, they told me, I mean, um, I have like darker skin just naturally. Um, they told me within a year to get my first one. And then since then, I've been getting them yearly. Um, and I, I have friends who have to go twice a year. And I have friends who usually who, who can wait like, you know, at least at least they do it every other year. But in general, I think most people just recommend at least once a year. Um, but again, just talk to your transplant team to see the specifics because there are people who require it more frequently than that. Yeah, agree. And also, I'm very proud of you for getting your skin checked. (laughs) (laughs) It's also because I like Botox, but that's a whole other thing. (laughs) I'll get my skin checked. And also, can I get some Botox on my face? Um, And if that 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 is a common question I get, actually, is if you have a transplant, um, can you get Botox or any cosmetic procedures? And I defer to transplant team on that. Um, May, I don't know if you have anything to add for that, but I do think that there are some people that um, have to be more careful. Um, some people are more prone to infections and all that stuff. So generally speaking, just talk to your team to see if that's a possibility for you. Yeah, 100%. I, I agree with that statement. Um, overall, you know, I I don't think, you know, it's contraindicated in a lot of cases, but that's, you know, like you were saying, the infection rate and all that. So definitely good to talk to your transplant team. And once you're cleared for it, I'm down to do it. In terms of the transplant community, so one, for my limited medical knowledge, basal cell is not that concerning. Um, you can prove me wrong when I when you answer this question. But does somebody who's been having a lot of basal cell, is are they at high risk for squamous cell and melanoma? Um, and is that why those patients should be getting checked more often? So basal cell is actually the most common um, skin cancer. And that one does not generally have the potential to metastasize. So it's mostly from UV exposure you've had over time. Yes, the immunosuppressive, you know, influences that. Um, But you are at higher risk of developing more of them in that five-year span after your first basal cell or squamous cell. 
it, there's no real link as far as having a basal cell and then developing melanoma over time. It may just be that because you've had chronic sun exposure over time, you are at higher risk for developing skin cancer in general. Um, but basal cell being the most common one, the reason why we even worry about them to begin with is because they can be very locally destructive, getting bigger and deeper over time. I'm pretty sure she like died a little when you said basal cell is, is not that serious. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking you're talking to somebody who plans on going into advanced heart failure where people are always very 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 sick and so when you have some basal cell we're just talking in terms of you know comparison that's all that's what that's what i say about icu like i'm so used to seeing people just like really sick that like you know having just like an elective, you know, procedure is so different for me than, than, you know, being vented in the ICU. So I get it, but it it is all serious in its own way. Get your skin checked. No, I completely agree with getting your skin checked. And I am mad at myself for having not been to the dermatologist in a while. Um, I have a nice mark on my arm right now that I'm looking at that likely is basal cell that needs to get taken care of. Hey, better late than never. And also, you could probably ask about Botox at your appointment. Are you trying to tell me something, May? <laughs> they call it Botox, okay? It's great. I love it. I would like to ask May, oh. what made her decide on dermatology? You know, I fell in love with dermatology during my clinical rotations, um, you know, it, the scope of practice is so diverse and unique compared to, you know, the other avenues in medicine. I can see patients from all ages, um, all walks of life and form really lasting relationships. Um, and no two appointment slots really, in my mind, are the same. I see rashes, skin checks, skin conditions like eczema, psoriasis, then of course the cosmetic stuff, and then procedural derm like skin cancer excisions, which is very rewarding to me. I get to work with my hands, but I also get to kind of be um, you know, somebody who's involved with the entire patient care, because a lot of times what people don't realize is that the body, you know, the skin is a window to things happening inside of the body. For example, if I see changes on the skin like jaundice, that can be a marker to underlying liver cirrhosis or rashes on the skin that can be marker to autoimmune conditions like lupus or dermatomyositis. So it's all very, um, it's all very interesting in that regard. When we were in med school, May was always like helping me out with makeup and skin stuff because I didn't know any of that. Um, <laughs> and and fun fact was actually um, when I got really sick for my heart, tra- like right, right before my heart transplant, I was obviously hospitalized for a couple of weeks and May flew into Philadelphia to visit me. And like the first thing I asked for, I was like, can you just do my makeup for one day? <laughs> so she did my makeup for me. I remember that. <laughs> it was very nice. Um, and so even in med school, like our first couple of years of med school, first of all, May was always at the top of our class. I'll also give her that. Um, I love showing her off. But on top of that, um, she was always just into skin and and beauty. And, and so um, it was such a perfect specialty that she chose. So. Well, thanks, Celine. Cannot yeah. go into derm if you're not top of the class. Oh yeah, yeah. I, we should mention that dermatology is one of the most competitive specialties. So, <laughs> I will just say I think it's just working hard at whatever you want, you'll get there. Agreed. Agreed. May you mentioned before um, a company that I think you said makes clothing to help with sun protection. 
Um, what was the name of that company? And is there equal effectiveness of clothing versus sunscreen or is one better than the other? You know, if you're going to wear the UPF clothing, it's not going to cover like your face, your hands, that sort of thing. So I would say still wear the sunscreen. Um, but if you're wearing like UPF clothing as a shirt or pants, then you don't necessarily need to put sunscreen underneath that. Um, the brand that I was recommending was Coolibar, C-O-O-L-I-B-A-R. And um, they just make really lightweight, nice clothing for men. You know, it feels very lightweight, breathable. But, you know, the fabrics too, they they have different they confer different UPF patterns. So cotton actually is the least protective from sunlight. And so um, polyester actually confers better protection. So a lot of those clothes may be polyester, um, but they do have good protection from sunlight. Great. Thank you. May, how can people reach you if they want to talk to you? My social media page, uh, Dr. Wrinkle Stopper. We will um, post that on our Instagram and also in the show notes. Um, So you can add her, follow her, and then of course, ask whatever questions you need to both on our Instagram um, post and directly to her. Dr. Wrinkle Stopper as a play on Dr. Pimple Popper is an excellent name. Thank you. I appreciate it. I just, I feel like (laughs) social media is just so difficult these days. (laughs) But Dr. Pimple Popper, she's also a very lovely person. <laughs> I've never watched it, and I don't know the fascination of why people like watching getting pimples popped, but maybe you guys do. I mean, May probably does more than me. You know, I have a lot of patients who will come in for like a cyst removal or something, and they will ask me, like, can I watch you remove it because I want to see it pop? And I just. No. I- <laughs> One thing I, I never liked, especially even like in the ER, just like INDs and, and like abscesses like that. I mean, I'll do it, but it I, I don't understand the fascination. So it's weird. Agree. <laughs> I've actually seen a lot of um, like posts. If you like look at one Dr. Pimple Popper post and then you get like part of that algorithm and they'll show you a ton. And it'll just be these videos of people popping pimples and blackheads do you do that on a daily basis? Do people just come in to have you pop their pimples for them? No, because pimple popping, like if you're not doing a sterile technique, you're going to get hyperpigmentation on your face. You may get an, an infection. So just don't do it at home. Um, but people can come in to have extractions if they have a significant number of pimples on their face. Um, but generally speaking, you know, if you've got one one pimple that won't go away, I'll inject it with a little bit of steroid and that'll flatten it out really quickly. That's a good take home point for everyone at home who watches those videos. Let's not be crazy doing crazy pimple popping at home. You could be increasing your risk of infection. And I think that plays a major role for our immunocompromised listeners. Yeah, definitely. I have been popping blackheads on my nose for like years and like a month ago, I found out that like these haven't even been blackheads. <laughs> Wait, so what are you popping? What that was my pop? question. <laughs> what, what, is on your uh, what is it called? Oh my god, I forgot the medical term, but it's it's like thready and um. Oh my god, I'm, I'm gonna look it up. Filaments. Yes, that's what it is, or I'm pretty sure that's what it is, and I've just been like popping them for years. It is kind of addictive. Yeah, yeah that's just a glorified term for uh, clogged pores. 
what are you supposed to do with them? You know, retinols are the best way to help to exfoliate some of those blackheads um, and clean out your pores. Uh, Basically, it's a vitamin A derivative that helps turn over skin cells. So it'll help clean out your pores long term. I was going to ask you this when I found out what that was a couple weeks ago. So thanks. (laughs) I'll put my Retin-A on it now. There there you go. I will say this, like... Obviously, as a transplant patient, you also are prone to more like skin infections and other things other than skin cancer, too. So like I've had tinea and um, I'm like like eczema and different things like that. So I see a dermatologist quite often. And I remember one time I went to my dermatologist's office and we, we tend to do this as transplant patients, especially as somebody who like works in an ICU and I see transplant patients like at their worst, like, you know intubated and have all sorts of infections or cancers. And so when I was talking to her, I said something like, oh, like, I'm so, I feel so bad for coming in because of this like tinea or whatever it had been. Tinea, by the way, is a fungal infection. Um, and I had some like on my chest and I was like, I feel so bad. Like, this is such a dumb reason to come in. And she was like, you know, I actually don't think it's a dumb reason and it's okay for you to complain about things like this, even though it's, you know, if you think it's not that big of a deal because it's on the skin and it's not necessarily cancer. So it's okay for you to complain. And I just thought that was actually like a really nice um, moment with my, with my doctor. And then, and then we hugged. So it was really cute, (laughs) but she's amazing. So we love dermatologists. Thank you for all you do. Oh, thank you. And yeah, that is a really good point. You are prone to developing more skin rashes, you know, because of the immunosuppression. Um, molluscum is a big one. You know, those are a little yeah, bit yeah. on the skin. Uh, tinea is definitely one that I see pretty often. So um, yeah, I agree. I think that anything on your skin is important and your concerns are important regardless of it whether it's more serious or not serious and that's why we're here to help amazing thank you for being on the show thank you both so much for inviting me this is such an honor yes thank you so much for coming on thanks again to dr may hall again we will post all of her information on our instagram and our show notes and we'll link all of you guys to her and it was just nice to catch up with someone from medical school Remember to follow, subscribe, both sides of the stethoscope. You can also um, email us at both sides of the stethoscope at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media on both sides of the stethoscope on Instagram and Twitter. So we look forward to hearing from you and see you next time. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.